0: I listen. So when I hear what the client's problems are, I can come up with creative solutions to solve problems. So I'm not selling anything except for fixing something that's really broken. I'm just passionate about that. I love sales. I call it sport for me. I like getting in there with your clients and figuring things out together. For me, it's always fun, and I lead that way. And if it's not that way for a team member or something, then they're probably not in the right industry. But I had no problem working with people that really just wanted to be themselves They listened. If you listened, you can sell anything because you truly are solving a problem. And if people like you and can relate to you, they're going to buy from you. They got to buy from somebody. They might as well buy from somebody they like. That's who I am. And as a leader with my team, I would never ask them to do something that I wouldn't.
1: Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked to Kristen Yoshida about how to build international experience, her career as a partner at one of the big four and about her work coaching individuals of underrepresented groups to thrive in corporate environments. Today, we close International Women's History Month with another amazing leader. Kristen Standish is the founder of Raise Her, an accelerator agency and a member community for women-founded and minority-founded mission-driven brands. Kristen started this company after a career of over 20 years in Boston media. She worked for radios, newspapers, and for a long time she was the publisher of the prestigious Boston Magazine. She's accomplished, fun, and a true force of nature. Most importantly, she's fully confident in who she is, so she did not hold back. We talked about what it takes to be successful in sales, how to build a passion driven business, and the advantages of becoming an entrepreneur later in life. She also talked very directly and openly about some of the challenges that she faces as a strong and energetic woman who is not afraid to go against archaic practices. Kristen was introduced to me by a common friend and I actually told her for the first time during our interview. But you can probably tell that I really enjoyed our conversation and that I am already a big fan. And so, since during the interview she extended an invitation to join the Raise Her Mind community, which as she defines it is a community for women and men who are supporters of women in business, I am actually planning to accept the invitation. And I would suggest that maybe you consider that too. You can go and check out the site at razher.com. And now, enjoy the interview. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Let's start by having you introduce yourselves to our listeners. Tell us a little bit of your story and how you got where you are now.
0: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Kristen Standish. I'm the founder of Raise Her Collaborative, R A Z H E R Collaborative, and it's an accelerator agency and member community for women-founded and minority-founded mission-driven brands.
1: That's great. And obviously, you had a long journey before you started your own agency and your own company and initiative. Tell us a little bit about your experiences before and then what made you choose to start Raise Her.
0: Sure. So, yes, I've had a, a storied past. I've been in the media industry for over 25 years now, but I'm not going to count anything past 25. I think that sounds uh, geriatric enough. I uh, started my career at the storied Boston Phoenix, which I loved. I worked for Stephen Mindish, who passed away a few years ago, but I loved him. Uh, His son, Brad Mindish, was actually my intern. And I started Stuff at Night magazine, which was you know, a nightlife magazine here in Boston when I was 27 years old. And then I popped over to WBCN, uh, the next street over and ran the sales department for them for like five years. The first year uh, we went to the Super Bowl with Tom Brady. I happened to be fortunate enough to be along for that ride when we had the Rock Radio Network. Then I uh, had a limited stint at the Boston Globe, which ostensibly was my worst position ever, where I ended up being fired because I was a union buster. Then I went on to one of my favorite jobs. And uh, I think what motivated me most to create community and content when I was publisher at Boston Magazine. And my my mantra there was putting the content of the magazine on stage. And I did that through creating very big, large, elaborate events, mostly around food and what was iconic and best of Boston. Then I worked for Wear magazine, which I absolutely hated, and then uh, decided I was Jesus, fifty years old, almost fifty, and I needed to get out of publishing because, let's face it, sadly, publishing, as we remember it, with ink and and pages, is is over. And I was turning fifty, and I said, "What the hell am I going to do? I'm getting old, and I'm in an industry that's dying. So I need to reinvent myself." So three years ago. I took a job with an influencer tech agency called Grapevine. The young founder was phenomenal, Grant Deacon, who still continues to be a collaborator with me now. He was in the position of selling the company, wanted to usher in a new CEO through the corporate acquisition because we were then acquired by a Ideonomics, which was a publicly traded company, and he was wanted to leave, so he groomed me and I became CEO of something I had no idea how to run and really had no respect for the industry at all. Now it's a $120 billion industry, but I knew it was coming and I just was in denial. So worked for him for a year and then took the company that I was working for and created something called Founded Grapevine Shops. And Grapevine Shops was a collection of women in mission-driven brands that we sold on our community pages through influencers. Long story short, that company was acquired uh, in a backroom deal where the boys all got rich, shook hands, and I got left holding a proverbial bag of you-know-what. I said to myself, well, this is the last time this is happening to me. And I took my stock options, which I got, by the way, got zero severance. My team got zero severance. They shut us down. The acquisition was just part of a valuation scheme to get the acquiring company's pre-revenue valuation up. And um, I decided, well, I'm going to raise up my own company, hence the name Raise Her, and I asked my team if they would like to join me, and I was going to bootstrap this baby and get her going, and that was in May I had the idea. In November, we went public-facing, and now we're doing business for major organizations, including the National Kidney Foundation, and have just uh, started our member communities, the first of which is Raise Her Mind, which is... Really, a powerful networking community of women and some men who are like you, supporters of women, and we are really collaborating through the beauty and the power of the written word. So my my ink in my veins has never gone away. I always bring it back, and hopefully someday books will come back the way that uh, you know the the records did, and encouraging women to come together. Through collaboration uh, through the community, but through awesome books and films. And it's a monthly membership. And I've got 30 members already within 30 days of launching. Uh, We launched the memberships less than a month ago and we have. New York Times bestselling authors as part of our uh, book club where you actually get to meet the authors, including Catherine Howe, who's a fellow sailor who just co-authored the Anderson Cooper Vanderbilt book and um, countless others. So yeah, so that's a long-winded story for, you know, a young woman's career that spanned 25 years.
1: Well, that is fantastic and extremely rich, had like at least three or four points where like, oh, I want to ask her about this. So hopefully I'll remember everything that I want to ask you. But I think our listeners can tell from the stories that you're sharing that you have no qualms truly being yourself. So I'll start with the question. How do you define authenticity and what does it mean for you to be authentic?
0: You just asking me that question gave me the goosebumps. It's very easy for me to be authentic because I love to listen to people's stories And if you listen to what they're saying, and you're hearing them, and you respond in a way that you're making a real connection with somebody, life becomes fascinating. And that's kind of what my job is now. And and just being who I am, unabashedly, unapologetic, but truly, I think, compassionate, that's how I run my life. I try to make a difference. And I know this sounds corny, but in everybody I have an interaction with. And right now is such a great time for women to kind of bond together and don't just say it, they actually do it. So now I have a company that connects powerful women. And if we want to get something done, we don't have to go through layers of BS to get there. And I make a commitment to that. So I'm very authentic when I say I'm trying to raise up women. I really am.
1: And I love the fact, I don't know if you did this on purpose or if I just noticed, I love the fact that the way it's spelled R-A-Z-H-E-R is not just raise women, but also the idea of the razor as something really sharp.
0: Yes, that was the intention. So it was razor sharp women, razor sharp minds. And then I just tweaked the word to, you know, play on the H-E-R, like raise her, Yep. No, that was absolutely the impetus for starting the company. I can remember the text exchange with some colleagues and say, do you get it? And they're like, oh, yeah, like Razor Sharp. And I'm like, yes, bingo. And um, by the way, just a little like. I'm geeking out here, but you'll get this as a as a founder. I had been trying to get the the one word domain, which, you know, uh, as a founder is like the the holy grail. So I had to buy Razor Collab, Razor Co, blah, blah, blah. I put in for, you know, to try to buy it through GoDaddy months and months ago. And I just got the one name uh, domain, Razor. Dot com. So, yes, very excited about it. And it, it is about razor-sharp minds and razor-sharp people coming together.
1: That is fabulous. So I want to go back and start peeling off the layers of the onions of your fabulous career. And, and let's start looking at the sales side. You started out as a producer, went all the way up to managing a sales force. And I'm curious, how do you think about being a leader of salespeople What qualities are you trying to model for them? How do you teach them? How do you train them? Because it is a very difficult balance. You know, on one side, sales is a very black and white concept with clear production metrics. But at the same time, I think you want to be empathetic.
0: For me, I listen. So when I hear what the client's problems are, and I'm creative. I can come up with creative solutions to solve problems. So, I'm not selling anything except for fixing something that's really broken. And I'm just passionate about that. I ideate on demand. I think I'm an idiot savant when it comes to creative ideas. And I just have no issue with really getting in the trenches and and rolling up my sleeves and getting stuff done. I love sales. I call it sport for me. It's just fun. I like getting in there with your clients and figuring things out together and, again, just solving problems. So for me, it's always fun, and I lead that way. And if it's not that way for a team member or something, then they're probably not in the right industry. But I had no problem working with people that really just wanted to be themselves They listened. If you listened, you can sell anything because you truly are solving a problem. And if people like you and can relate to you, they're going to buy from you. They got to buy from somebody. They might as well buy from somebody they like. So my mantra with salespeople, too, was if you're in this office, you're out. People don't want to do business unless they get to see you and they're out collaborating with you and you're attending events. Now, of course, the world has changed and everything's done by email, unfortunately. But, you know, being out there, being in the mix, hearing about opportunities, being first to pick up on something because you're there and you're hearing about things, just being in the mix and hustling. That's who I am. And as a leader with my team, I would never ask them to do something that I wouldn't. I always would go with them, do three-legged calls, I think lead by example and show your team that it can be, you know, really rewarding to deliver great results for clients and to have fun and just be who you are because people will buy from you if they like you.
1: Yeah, I really like that and actually agree 100% with that. Let's talk about something else within the sales world. I think there's a big myth that you're either born a great salesperson or you're not. And I believe instead that ability to sell is actually a trained skill. So when you have a young, promising salesperson who may be a little shy, or if you're talking to a sales manager, what advice do you have to help people overcome that initial shyness?
0: Assuming the sale throughout the process is always great. So, checking in with the client. So you like this idea? This is a good one, right? Does it solve this problem for you? It does. Good. Like, so throughout the process, instead of it being about asking for money, you're just wrapping up the conversation saying you've checked all the boxes of the issues that the client's having and say, this is really great. I'm certain that I can get this done. And, you know, it's going to cost you between Eighty and a hundred thousand dollars. Am I in the right ballpark here? Like really coaching your prospect along so that there's buy in and agreement. And if everything's firing on all cylinders during that process, asking for the money is just an assumption. It's great. Should I get you this contract? Should I get this over to you? And then shutting
1: up. Absolutely. I think this is something that doesn't always receive the emphasis it deserves. Teaching people, salespeople, manager, when it's actually time to shut up, because there's a tremendous amount of power in silence and in actually letting whoever is sitting on the other side of the table think and decide what they're gonna do. All right, now let's move to the next phase of your career. You became a publisher. How did you rethink your role as a leader, as a publisher? And how did your sales skill, help you in that new leadership position?
0: Being a publisher, yes, the publisher is responsible for the sales side, but it's being creative and collaborating with the interdepartmental folks that have assets for you to leverage. So really creating relationships within silos. You know, you hear the expression editorial and advertising are church and state. That used to be true. So if you had something you wanted from the editorial department, you had to really think creatively about how you could monetize that. So for example, let's say we're doing our food issue in February and it's 50 best restaurants. Okay, well, how do I take those 50 best restaurants, actually put them on stage, get our our subscribers to come to an event that they're going to pay for, that they're going to get to try 50 of the best restaurants in the city and pay a ticket price beyond their subscription of the magazine and how does that turn on the editors how do they get excited about that because that makes it a lot easier for them to access chefs and get at you know back at them so creating a narrative and storytelling within your departments that bring people along so at the end of the day Dino, I guess I'm always selling. It's still selling because you're trying to get people to come along with you with what you want them to do. You're just navigating, I guess, different prospects. So you become somebody that wants to accomplish a goal, but you have to get other people on your team to come along. So I was always in leadership roles. Very seldom was I an individual contributor. I think my first job, I was an individual contributor and then I was always in management. So I always had this desire to kind of bring people along. And I had a vision. I always had a vision that You know, I wanted to create something that wasn't in a basket of things I was told I could sell. I wanted to create compelling content that people could attend or engage with. And that's what I'm doing now with Razor Mind. It's a lot easier to sell something you're passionate about and that you can create than a widget.
1: Yeah, I can definitely hear and feel your passion when you talk about Razor. I want to just take one more step back and in your journey to becoming the leader you are now. You mentioned early on a couple of challenges that you went through. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk to us about them and share maybe the important lessons that you got from those experiences and how that shaped you into the leader that you are now.
0: I had a couple of amazing bosses. One when I was in radio, and he said, Kristen, you're gonna walk in a room and you're just this type of personality where you're no BS, you put it out there, you've got huge Assets and big red hair and a big mouth, people are not going to like you. Men, especially, they're either going to like you or they think they're going to flirt with you and you're going to be for sale. And I was like, What? And he's like, Trust me on this. Men don't want to just help you out. Like the men in radio, they're intimidated by what you're bringing to the table. So instead of pussyfooting around like rumors or things like that, own it and say, Oh, yeah, you heard that about me? You want to hear the real version? It's so much better. And I'll own my personality. Own the fact that, yes, I like to drink. Yes, I like to have fun. Yes, I'll flirt. Yeah, But, you know, like, there's a fine line between you, you know, flirting and then someone saying that you're whatever it is, right? So owning who you are and being comfortable with who you are, I think is great. And I came up against a lot of guys in radio that didn't want to have to deal with women. They couldn't handle me. So instead of finding a way to communicate with somebody like me who's strong and compassionate and, you know, really has a big personality it was just easier to not deal with women like me so sometimes I would lose a, lose a position because they wanted to bring in their own crony and have it an easier go at it I would challenge people all the time I would say this isn't right we can't be like this to women who just had a baby or we can't like we got to do a better job. And the fact of the matter was they didn't want to hear it. But I had an awesome boss, Chris Paquin, who to to this day is one of my mentors and I loved him. Um, He really said, just own it. If you get fired, wear it as a badge of honor. Don't be afraid to talk about it. And it will toughen you up and bring you into your next role in a much better way. So that was one time where I really came up against a boss that wanted to hire and bring in his own guy and you know, they muscled me out and it was terrible. But you know, I landed in a much better position. And then oddly enough, and I'll share this when I was at the globe, I was hired to bring in non-union salespeople. They wanted to get away from being union. Isn't it crazy when you think that there'd be salespeople that are union? But at the globe there were. And basically they were folks that had generational jobs. Their father worked for the globe, their uncle worked for the globe. And they were order takers and they made a lot of money. Well, they things were starting to change, I don't know, say like 2007, when the economy shit the bed, sorry. And um, they needed people that were hungry and, and hunters, they called us. And nobody hunts better than a radio salesperson, by the way. So it's the toughest gig to sell radio. So they hired me. I became the VP of advertising. I had two amazing bosses, Lauren Chacon and Peter Newton, whom I still uh, am very close with. They hired me. They said, Kristen, hire all your top radio salespeople. I brought them all in. Then Peter and Lauren left and went to Monster. and I was like, holy crap, here I am in this it was almost like working for the Catholic Church, I have to say. I mean, so many rules, regulations. You didn't step aside. You didn't step up. You never spoke up. You never said anything. So you can imagine I was not loved. I used to have to be walked out by a um, security guard because that's how much people hated me and wanted me out of there. So um, it ended up that I got fired for sexually harassing a girl. So imagine me who's heading up Raise Her Collaborative, who has an 11-year-old daughter, believes in nothing more than supporting women, and in fact promoted this young woman from classified to work you know, in general advertising, which was a big deal at that time. And I happened to accidentally walk in on her having um, a good time with one of my sales reps. So she happened to be engaged to a gentleman in another department. And I was like, oh, God, this is bad. So I went to my boss and I told him. And, um, you know, he was quite upset by the news. And three weeks later, I start dealing with the HR. And, and then I get fired because I was reportedly that I made this up about this woman who was engaged to somebody in classified, having fun with someone on my team. And when I went to my boss, I had no idea that he was also entertaining her and got so upset with me that he couldn't believe that she was doing these things. And I found this out later that I actually got fired because he was also having an affair with this young woman and I got railroaded. And it wasn't really because of that. It was because... He didn't like me. I was not one of the boys. And my two champions had left the company. And now all of a sudden, he inherited me. And when people inherit someone like me, I could be your worst nightmare because they didn't choose me. And I'm not for everybody. And sometimes I can be tough to handle. And he just wanted me out of there. So I lost my job. I think I'm the only person to ever get fired by the Globe, by the way. But it was really about me trying to break the union. But you can imagine how devastating that is to get fired for sexually harassing a girl that worked for me, a woman. It was mortifying. And only up until, I think, a month or so ago, was I able to say that out loud. I really could never believe that happened to me. And now I'm like, again, a badge of honor. It had nothing to do with me. And it really didn't have anything to do with her either. It had to do with the guy that was my boss. So I've been through challenging situations. What do you, you just learn from them and you grow, you know? And now I'm an entrepreneur because I'm really, I think I'm unhirable, to be honest with you. I don't want to work for anybody else. So I damn well better get it straight this
1: time. (laughs) Well, I think that probably 90% of entrepreneurs start out because they're unhirable. Yeah. (laughs) So I want to touch upon something else that you mentioned, a situation that it sounds like you've been in a couple of times in your career. So there's an organizational change. And all of a sudden, the people above you who may have brought you in and who really believe in you are gone. What advice would you have for somebody who find themselves in that position?
0: Get a new job, go find your own people. Don't stick around and wait for the inevitable. People bring in their cronies, they do it every day. Unless you absolutely love it, go find your place. Never just settle on the job. And at the end of the day, anybody anywhere can fire you. You can put in 15 years, 20 years, it doesn't matter. If somebody is above you and they don't like you, they can get rid of you. And it's not worth fighting over. It's not worth wasting your mental like bandwidth on. Move on. There's so many awesome opportunities out there. You, you stand up for what's right. But when you feel it, you're not going to win. Odds are you're not. So go someplace where you can.
1: Yeah, that's more excellent advice. I think we're taught that we shouldn't quit, but I think there's a big difference between quitting and knowing when it's time to cut your losses. All right. So finally, let's talk about how do you start a mission-based business? What suggestions would you have for somebody who has a passion and they want to start a business based on their passion?
0: People need to believe in a cause that they want to support. It's always important to have something that you want to give back to. And that's not just lip service. It's something that really matters to you. And support that because through your success, you can help, you know, a charitable organization. And I always have worked with several, but I pick a couple that really mean something to me. And you can see the difference that you make to them. Also, pick something you're, you know, you're passionate about about my mission is easy. I have a daughter that is 11 years old and my co-founders have daughters too. I want to give them an opportunity to set their own table, to work with people that are like-minded, that get through the clutter and get stuff done without bumping into a glass ceiling or have men around you that are and I love men, by the way, I'm not bashing them, but working in an environment where everybody is pushing forward to make things better. That's my mission, to have a place where women founders, if they want to collaborate with somebody on something, they've got it within our community. It's sort of like a hyper-focused LinkedIn of women founders who are just hell-bent on getting shit done. And that is, The mission that I have is to create a better place for our girls so that it's easier for them. And and that's very easy for me to do because I've done it naturally all the time because it was hard for me. It's hard for women, especially in traditional media companies that were all run by men, all of them. And I came up against it all the time But I'm a scrapper and a fighter, but not everybody is. So I figure if I can throw a few elbows and gain some friends and make some uh, things happen amongst my members and community, that's clearing a path. And if I can employ powerful women and, you know, give them an opportunity to work for a great organization or get a job within one of our partner's firms or work for one of our partner's brands, our member's brands, have at it, like. I think that's the secret sauce is doing something you really
1: care about. How does one get from figuring out that's the mission that they want to support to start thinking about this is how this turns into a business to then take like the right early steps so that the business will have the legs.
0: It depends on what your goals are. So I'm an entrepreneur that wants to work for five more years and then sail around the world. I'm 53 years old. My mission is different. I want to build this awesome community with subscribers and members. I only want to be an agency for really brands that matter to me that actually make a difference. So health organizations, kidney foundation, things like that. And I then want to have maybe a goal of 15,000 members. And then I want to hand over the reins to someone else to run that. So for me, I'm very strategic about I want to create a community. I want it to be women. I want to have X number of members because I want my company to be worth X number of dollars. And then I want to turn it over, sell it and exit out and sail away. I've done my work and I'm ready to exit. So it depends on where you are in your career. So there's certain fundamentals that you know, if I was 25 years old, I could never do what I'm doing right now. I wouldn't have the experience and know how to pull all the levers to get powerful women to come along with me and and do what it is that I'm so passionate about doing. So it depends on where you are in your career. I have 25 years of relationships that now I can go in and say, Okay, I've worked with you, Family Reach, when I was at Boston Magazine. I love the CEO, Carla Tarliff, who I worked with when she headed Ernie Box, you know, Music Drives Us Foundation. Those things come from experience and relationships that I've earned over 25 years.
1: Can I just stop you here for a second? Yeah. I love Carla Tarliff too.
0: Ah, oh, me too.
1: I hope she's listening. We had the kids in the same school when they were in elementary school, and Carla is amazing.
0: I love Carla.
1: Yeah, she's fabulous.
0: So I know really well, Ming Tsai. And, you know, I've known Carla for years. So it's authenticity and years and years of coming up together and working together. And, you know, I couldn't do what I'm doing now as a young woman, because I know everybody, you know, in this town now. and, And yeah, I've worked with them.
1: You're raising a really interesting point, which is I think there's a little bit of a myth that to be a founder, you know, you need to start as soon as you can. But there are a lot of benefits to actually starting a business in your later years. You've mentioned relationships and experience. What are the things you think are the other benefits to starting your business later on in life?
0: I'm not a slave to my paycheck my child and my free time um, not free time because i worked pretty much 24 hours a day but i can be where i want to be when i want to be there and funny enough right now i'm in the dressing room on newbury street of a boutique that i love shopping at because i love the saleswoman in here and it looks beautiful right you're on a stack of clothing we had our call with family reach I have another appointment at 2 o'clock. In the meantime, I'm going to Miami tomorrow, and I want to stop in here. I didn't have my computer, so I'm doing an interview in a changing room. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it and how I want to do it. And that's important to me more than anything, more than money. And I, I own my home. I'm going to put it up for sale. I don't want to have any investors if I can get away with it. And I want to build something, you know, that's mine. And I have the, I don't have financial freedom right now, but I'm willing to roll the dice. Whereas before I was a slave to the paycheck. And now I'm, the pandemic changed me. I know that sounds like so cliche, but it did. I'm like, I want to sell my boat when I want to sell my boat. If I want to work from the cockpit of my boat on a call and close a six figure deal, I'm doing that. And those are the things that are important to me now. It's being there for my daughter. It's, you know, not sitting in traffic and being a slave to an office. And, you know, I'm doing it the way that I want to do it without being judged. And I, I just want to do it the way that I feel good
1: about usually at this point of the conversation i ask people about how their definition of success has changed over their career but i think it's pretty clear in your case that success is no longer about just massive financial success or building the next unicorn you know obviously financial rewards are important but it feels to me like what's really important to you is building the type of company that reflects your value and that creates the right environment for yourself for your employees and probably for your clients. So I think in in a trade-off where you need to take investor money to build the next unicorn or not build a unicorn, but keep full control, you would probably take the latter. Is that correct?
0: Yep. I'd rather sell my house and put a million dollars back into the business. And by the way, I do plan on being a unicorn. I've got my you know, triple, triple, double, double sales projections. I am very metrics-driven. I'm very sales-driven. At the end of the day, that's what I want. I just don't want to take other people's money if I don't have to because I don't want to give it away for free anymore. I've done that my whole career. I've made other people rich, and now I'd like to make me and my founders rich and the people we donate to and create a community of really rich women that are awesome and that are there to support each other. So, yeah, I do want to make money. I'm not ashamed of that. We've had offers for investors and, you know, I'm not saying at some point we won't take them, but I want to see if we can do it without it. Not sure, but I'd like to be able to do it without investors right now.
1: Well, that's fabulous. And I think this is also the perfect point to transition from the professional part of our conversation to the more personal. What is a passion that you have outside work and how has that impacted your work and professional life?
2: Oh,
0: great question. I'm passionate about sailing. I started sailing when uh, the pandemic hit. My friend, my dear friend, Max Mulhern, who teaches celestial navigation at Harvard, said, Kristen, get a sailboat. And I said, I don't know how to sail. I said, I'll teach you how to sail. Get a sailboat. So I went down to the boatyard and I met this older woman in her late 60s working on her boat. And I said, can I come and work on your sailboat with you? And she goes, why the hell would you want to do that? And I said, yeah, I don't know. I'm looking at maybe buying a sailboat. She's like, you can buy this fucking sailboat. It's from 1964. I've been sailing this baby for my whole life, and I want to get rid of it. And I go, well, how much do you want for it? She's like five grand. And I go, well, it's a little steep for my blood. How would I work on it with you for couple weeks before splash, get her ready. And then let's decide. So we worked on it for two weeks and she goes, so I'm going to put this boat in the water, but I'm not going to own it. You are. And she goes, how much can you give me? And I go 2,500. She goes, deal. We splashed the boat. My friend Max, he teaches Royal Yachting Association. I got my day skipper license. I sailed 75 days in one summer. I had never been on a sailboat. I never sailed. I lived in Nahant. I took a right every day to go into freaking Boston to work. I never took a left and went out on that ocean. I live for it. I love it. I have a 1964 Pearson Ensign, and I have to tell you, the magic of sailing and the connections you make is like no other. And I'll give you a quick example. So Catherine Howe, the author I spoke about earlier, who co-authored The Vanderbilt with Anderson Cooper... She has a ensign. She owns the oldest ensign in the entire East Coast, and she heads Fleet 16, which I'm in. I happened to notice on her signature, when she, she'd been emailing me, we sailed together, she sent me a note, and on the bottom was her signature with Catherine Howe, author, Anderson Cooper, Vanderbilt, blah, blah. I click on it, and I'm like, holy shit, this is Catherine Howe. I love this. Oh, my God. I had no idea the connection. So I had the courage to say to her, hey, I want you to be part of my book club. It'd be great if you could meet my members. And you know, she's like, Kristen, I'm so busy right now. I, I can't do anything for free. And I said, well, I don't have buckets of money, but let me think about it. And she said, uh, all right, well, let me think about it too. And my boyfriend, who's also a sailor, amazing man, Aaron Deong, and he said, Kristen, what's wrong with you? Offer to buy your new sails. So I Email her back. And I'm like, Catherine, I just got new sails for Christmas. How about we get you some new sails? And she's like, hmm, well, I don't need new sails, but I do need my cockpit varnished. And I said, well, this is how it began. And this is how it will end. And it will always be about sailboats. So my passion is sailing. And I managed to weave it into work. And um, I'm trying to wrangle her into meet the author event at my Dory Club. So sailing. Long answer. That's it. And then, of course, my little girl, Abby, who's my everything. She's the the wind in my sail, but she hates sailing. So, uh, But that's my passion, sailing.
1: That's a great story. Uh, This is my favorite question of the podcast. I call it the bullshit detector. And I'm pretty good. You have (laughs) a pretty strong one. Every era has expressions in business and jargon that at some point drive us crazy. Which is the one that drives you crazy?
0: Does that make sense? Does it make sense? Does that make sense? Does it make sense? (laughs) It's so condescending. I hate it. People say that all the time. Oh, does that make sense? Am I making sense? That's it right there.
1: I need to wash out because that's something that I actually say. (laughs) That's very funny. Finally, I call it food for the body or food for the soul. Either you can choose which way you're going to go. If you want to go down the body route, you can choose a recipe or a drink that you love. If you're going to go the soul route, book, movie, piece of music, art, play, something that nourishes you.
0: Oh, cooking. It's definitely food. When I'm stressed out, give me a pot and some... Arbiata rice and I'm making you a risotto and opening you a really delicious bottle of wine while we sit at my kitchen counter and we talk and I cook. And I am most relaxed when I'm in my kitchen looking out at the water and cooking something. And my favorite thing to cook is saffron butternut squash risotto. Are you
1: hungry? I think I've just invited myself for dinner at your place. I hope so. You know that saffron risotto is the official risotto of Milano, right? And I'm from Milano.
0: I did not know that, but...
1: Risotto alla Milanese.
0: (laughs) I didn't know that. Oh, now I'm nervous, though, but I would love to cook for you.
1: Kristen, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much. Super excited that we have been introduced by our mutual friend, Jackie Intrizano, who is another, by the way, amazing and definitely extremely authentic fabulous woman that I have worked with at times, She's a great uh, music booking agent.
0: She's a member of Raise Her Mind. She is an authentic soul who really wants to move forward and help. That's um, an industry obviously dominated by uh, men and she's been kicked around a bit, but it seems like she is back on top I can't wait to go uh, see one of her shows at the Cabot. So thank you for connecting with me, Dino, and uh, much love to her.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend who may enjoy that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, please tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit of help counts. Now make sure that you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so that you don't miss the episodes when they get released and if you're listening on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Good Pods please leave us a good rating and a review As usual, stick around because at the end of the credits I'm going to share a song by the fabulous Susan Cattaneo one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. Make sure you visit the Razer site, it's spelled R-A-Z-H-E-R rcom and also visit the raise her mind community and book club at razor.com backslash raise her mind spelled r-a-z-h-e-r-m-i-n-d you can find kristen on linkedin at linkedin.com backslash in backslash kristen standish spelled k-r-i-s-t-e-n-s-t-a-n-d-i-s-h you can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four And then you can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp.com. And finally, you can find me on Facebook at Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums and recorded it, with Tony Savrino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo. I wanted to match the fun and the energy of Kristen, and so I picked a song from her album Haunted Heart, which is a classic and always a fun moment that shows it's a song in which a woman tells a guy in no uncertain terms that he's the one who's missing out on the end of the relationship. And the song is called Worth the Whiskey. Enjoy!
2: Every time you feel the burn, I hope you miss me Cause I'm worth the whiskey